The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We're continuing our study this morning in the seventh chapter of John, which really is a turning point in this gospel. In the first four chapters, we see very little opposition to Yeshua. In fact, it's kind of gaining in popularity. We have an incident in chapter 5 where the Jewish leaders try to kill him because they feel he is blasphemed because he healed somebody on the Sabbath and then said he was equal with God. They didn't like that. But chapter 6 opens up in the Galilee, or he, he, he's gone to get some R&R. He's crossed across the lake, and he's trying to go to an isolated spot, but these crowds follow him there. And really, at this point, his popularity is at an all-time high. I mean, thousands of people are following him, and they want to make him king. You know, they like what he's doing. Why don't you be our king? But by the end of the chapter, the crowds have forsaken him, Because they couldn't handle his teaching. See, they liked when he was feeding them. But when he starts teaching them, they didn't like that. And so they forsook him. And chapter 7 opens with the Jews trying to kill him. So from here on to the end of his public ministries, we see a steadily deepening hostility. They're angry. They want to get rid of him. Now, if you remember, the the setting of chapter 7 is the Feast of Tabernacles. Which means it's now six months until the spring Passover where Yeshua will be crucified. So he's six months away from his death right now. So we're really coming into the last leg of his journey on earth. Uh, His ministry is heading to the cross. And that uh, colors some of the things he has to say this morning. The Feast of Tabernacles, remember, was an eight-day festival intended to celebrate the ingathering of the grape and the olive harvest. But it had additional elements deliberately tagged on to it to remind the Israelites of certain truths about their past. It was a time in which they remembered their deliverance from Egypt. All the men were expected to live in booths that they had made from sticks and branches. It was kind of like a camping thing. You know, when you were a little kid, you made you took the blankets and you made tents. <laughs> well, they took branches and they made tents all over the city. And they left their houses to go live In these tents. And the pilgrims, the same thing. If you lived in Jerusalem, you were expected to erect such a dwelling. The people who lived there would go up on the roof and they'd build this thing. And they'd sleep in it during the festival. And this was done to remind them of the 40 years that the Israelites wandered around in the wilderness, staying in tents, before the Lord brought them into their ancestral homeland of Palestine. And at this feast, like all the other major feasts, the city of Jerusalem was crawling with tens and thousands of people. If not hundreds of thousands. I mean, there was the population of Jerusalem itself, all, of course, all the people who lived there, but then all the other folks would come down from, you know, the land of Israel, people from Galilee, and people from the land of Perea, as well as other parts of Judea. And then you had the pilgrims who lived outside who would make the pilgrimage there to be there at the feast. So this place is packed. And they're all packing into the temple to watch the celebration, to see what's going on. Now, as we come to this text this morning, we're going to be looking at verses 25 through 36. 
And in these verses, the subject abruptly changes to Yeshua's identity. See, the discussion of the law and the discussion of the healing at the pool of the Sabbath, they disappear from the scene. And the issue is, who is this man? This is one of the most controversial issues in the earliest Jewish-Christian relationship. Who is he? Because everybody had a different opinion. The people were clearly confused about him. So we pick it up in verse 25. Now, I want to remind you, he is in the temple. Alright, he's gone to the temple. He's standing in the midst of the temple, picked a place out in the courtyard, and he begins to teach. And some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, Is this not the man they're seeking to kill? See, the opening question here in the Greek, it's in the grammatical form that expects a yes answer. In other words, yeah, hey, this is the guy they're trying to kill. Now, earlier in this text, Yeshua asked in verse 20, the crowd answered, you have a demon who seeks to kill you. So... In verse 20, they said, who seeks to kill you? Then in verse 25, they said, isn't this the man they're seeking to kill? Uh, That doesn't seem to go together. What's the problem here? How can they say who seeks to kill you in one verse and then later say, this is the guy they're trying to kill? Well, the answer is, if you're an attentive reader, there's four different groups in chapter 7 that he's speaking to. All right? We talked about these in the beginning message on this chapter. These four groups are you got the, his brothers, which refers to Yeshua's half-brothers. They were children of Mary and Joseph, and he was a child of Mary, but not Joseph. Alright, so they're half-brothers. And then we had the Jews, and when you ever see the Jews in this gospel, it usually refers to the Jewish leaders. Now, usually, not always. Lazarus used this to identify the Pharisees and the chief priests who were Sadducees. We see that in verse 32. There's another group that he just calls the crowd. This refers primarily to the pilgrims who were coming from all over the place to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacle. And see, the crowd, these pilgrims, they're not aware that the Jewish leaders are trying to kill Yeshua. I mean, they just got in town. They don't know what's happening in the town. They don't understand what's going on. Then you have another group called the people of Jerusalem. These are local folks, and they know what's going on. They know that the Sanhedrin is planning to kill Yeshua. So in verse 20, it's the crowd. You see, the crowd answers, you have a demon who seeks to kill you. And here in our text, it's the people of Jerusalem that ask that question. Alright? Is not this the man they're seeking to kill? So, The crowd is this larger group that's come in from out of town. They don't know. That's why they say, who seeks to kill you? They don't know what's going on. But in chapter, but in verse 25, it's the people of Jerusalem. The people who live there. They know what their leaders are trying to do. Now, notice what Acts chapter 2 tells us about the crowd. Acts chapter 2, we have another festival, Pentecost. It says, now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under the heaven. So these men from Pentecost had come from all over to celebrate Pentecost. Verse 9 through 10 tells us who they were. Parthians and Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the districts of Libya and Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. So you got people coming from all over the place. That's the crowd. They're visitors. They're unaware of the Jewish leader's plot. So they thought, this guy's crazy. He's saying people are trying to kill him. 
But the people of Jerusalem, they live there. They know the attitude of their leaders. They know they want to kill Yeshua because of what happened earlier when he healed the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. We're going back to chapter 5. Remember, it says, for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking the more to kill him. So the people are there. They, they watched him heal this lame man. They saw him tell the man to get up. And all of a sudden, this guy's been lame for 38 years. Now he's walking. And so the people are like, wow, this is amazing. And the Jews want to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, oh, he healed a man on the Sabbath. That's terrible. You shouldn't do that, right? But it was also he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So they're mad. They want to put him to death. And we see the same thing in chapter 7, verse 1. After these things, Yeshua is walking in Galilee. He's unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. So the Jews realize that Yeshua making himself God equal, and they regarded that as blasphemy, so they want to kill him, because blasphemy, according to the law, is punishable by death, according to Leviticus 24. Now, he really didn't blaspheme at all. He's just telling the truth, but to them, it's blasphemy. All right? All right, so he's standing there, and he's teaching in the temple, and some of the people say, "Ah, isn't this the guy they're trying to kill? They're a little confused. Why are they confused? Well, because the next verse says, he's speaking publicly, and they're saying nothing to him. The rulers don't really know that this is the Christ, do they? I mean, if they're trying to kill him, how come he's standing there teaching right in the middle of the temple? They're like, wait a minute, I thought our leaders were trying to kill this. I mean, they're wondering, why don't they get him? They know he's here. He's standing up. He's got everybody's attention. See, here's the thing. These Jewish leaders, they're in charge in that temple. It's their temple. And and so they're confused by the silence of the authorities. If they want to kill this guy, why are they letting him teach? Why don't they arrest him? Why don't they do something? And you can understand that. I mean, it's a little bit confusing. You're trying to kill the guy, and yet he's standing there talking. You're sitting around listening to him. doesn't make any sense. And he says, the rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? Now, notice that Lazarus here, he distinguishes the general populace from the rulers. Otherwise, he usually calls these people the Jews. But here he's saying the rulers, the rulers don't really know that this is the Christ, do they? And this is the thought that comes to their mind. They're like, well, maybe the rulers have come to believe this is the Christ. Maybe the rulers got some new information. And so now... They think this is the Christ, so they're just letting him go. Is this why he's able to teach publicly without anybody opposing him? Well, again, the construction of the Greek here requires a negative answer. No, they don't think he's the Christ. Okay, they don't think that. However, we know where this man is from. But wherever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. We know where this guy's from. See, they're saying, well, maybe the rulers think this is the Messiah, but... We know this is not the Messiah, all right, because we know where he's from. It can't be the Messiah because we know his history. He, this is the son of a carpenter. This man, his dad's name Joseph, his mother is Mary. He comes from a town called Nazareth. And can anything good come out of Nazareth? No, this can't be the Messiah. That's what they felt. And they always would fall back to this thing. It can't be the Messiah because they know where he came from. See, back in uh, chapter 6, verse 42, it says, 
They were saying, is not this Yeshua, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he say, I've come down out of heaven? I mean, what's he talking about? We know who he is. He didn't come from heaven. Joseph and Mary's child. So Yeshua told them in verse 24, if you remember, that's where we ended last week. He says, don't judge according to appearance. Judge with a righteous judgment. But Lazarus is showing here that the general confusion that resulted from people judging Yeshua superficially by appearance. We, they thought they knew where he was from. They thought they knew all about him. And then they say this, whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he's from. Now, does that sound a little weird to you? Do we know where the Christ is from? How do we know? But the Bible says, right? Well, here's the thing. There were several traditions. Listen, when everyone says, the Jews at this time believed, you better have a variety of things to say they believe, because they, just like everybody, just like our day, there's a whole lot of different things they believe. But there were kind of two primary traditions regarding the birth of Messiah in the first century. One was that Messiah would come from King David. He'd be born in the city of David in Bethlehem. Bethlehem, right? This was prophesied by the prophet Micah in Micah 5.2. And the scribes called by Herod at the coming of the Magi. Remember Herod, well, where are they going to worship? Who's this guy they're going to worship? So he calls the scribes together. And they knew that he was from Bethlehem. So that's a biblical view, but it wasn't a universal view. There was another view out there, another tradition, so to speak, that Messiah would grow up in obscurity, unknown to the world until he reached adulthood, and all of a sudden his identity would be known, and he would demonstrate himself through signs and wonders. This was a rabbinical messianic tradition, and it was based loosely on Malachi 3.1, that Messiah would appear suddenly in the temple, but it was also found in some pseudepigraphal literature. First Enoch 48 gave them that idea that, okay, he's just gonna, no one's gonna know. He's just all of a sudden appear and there he'll be. So their thinking was something like this syllogism, major premise. No one will know where the real Messiah comes from. That's what they thought. Alright? So you take the minor premise, we know where Yeshua comes from. That's what they thought. Guess what? They're both wrong, okay? So their conclusion was, therefore Yeshua cannot be the real Messiah. The problem was, both the premises were false. In the first place, it's not true according to Scripture that no one knows where Messiah comes from. As a matter of fact, the Bible says very plainly, He comes from Bethlehem. And if they'd have done a little homework, they could have gone to the temple, they could have got the birth records, they could have found out this guy is from Bethlehem. They just assumed He was from Nazareth. They didn't even look, you know, they didn't even do the research. So the idea that he should come suddenly, wholly unexpected, is not a biblical doctrine, though it was a rabbinic doctrine. In Mishnah Sanhedrin 97a, Rabbi Zerah taught, three come unawares, Messiah, a found article, and a scorpion. And I mean, teaching like this is like, you know, okay, well, we'll never know then where he's from because he comes unawares. So the thoughts were wrong about Messiah, where he would come from. The scriptures clearly told he'd be born in Bethlehem. Now, Yeshua knows what they're thinking, and so he answers their objection. He says, then Yeshua cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, you both know me and know where I am from, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. 
Now he cries out. This is kredzo in the Greek and has the idea of yelling at the top of his voice. He's just screaming. You know me. You know where I'm from. This is used four times by John. It's, it's to give a, introduce an important public announcement. Alright? He says, you both know me and know where I'm from. Did they? <laughs> Did they know where he was from? No, they're really confused. When they're, then what's he saying here? Well, they should have known him, right? Because John the Baptist revealed his identity as divine Messiah. And Yeshua has told them repeatedly that he came from heaven, that God is his father. But they didn't get it. They really didn't know him. So what's he mean here when he says, you know me and you know where I'm from? Well, these words could be taken. You could read this as a question. Do you think you know me and you think you know where I'm from? It could be read that way. But I think it's better to see this as irony. Oh, you know me, huh? You know where I'm from? Really? Look what Yeshua says later in John 8, 19. So they were saying to him, where is your father? Yeshua answered, you know neither me nor my father. So he's telling him, you don't know me. So in that verse, he said, you know me. You know where I'm from. But he didn't. He is using irony there. All right? You both know me and know where I'm from. So he's saying, you may know that I'm from Galilee. You may know that I lived in the town of Nazareth. You may know my public deeds. You may think you know my parents. You may have heard my words, but you have no idea who I am. You just don't. You don't know where I came from. They don't realize that He is God. He who sent me, he says, is true. Now this is the Greek word alethanos, and it means real. Uh, sometimes this word is used in the idea of being faithful, but here I think John's using it in the sense, you know, or Yeshua's using it in the sense is he's real. This is a standard way of referring to God in the fourth gospel. And then he says this to them, whom you do not know. Who's he talking to? Jews. And he tells them, you don't know God. What? Oh, that would have got that crowd fired up. Okay? If they're not mad at him now, I mean, they prided themselves on being the people of Yahweh. And he says, you don't know them. Where are they? Whose temple? <laughs> the temple of Yahweh. That's where they're at right now. Doing what? Celebrating Yahweh's feast of tabernacles. They're there to worship Yahweh. And he says, you don't even know them. You don't even know them. I mean, you talk about getting these people mad. Okay, that was their pride. Look what Paul said in, in Romans chapter 9, verses 3 and 4. He says, For I could wish that I myself were a curse, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites. So he's talking about the Israelites. Now notice what he says about the Israelites. To whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises. These were the most religious, most privileged, most well-taught people in the world. They had the oracles of God. They had the Jewish scriptures. And they didn't know Him. Remember what Yeshua said in chapter 5? He says, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. From the time Yeshua showed up and started His public ministry, if you didn't believe in Him, you didn't believe in the Father. If you didn't honor Him, you didn't honor the Father. That was all there was to it. So as they rejected Him, they were rejecting God. They were demonstrating they didn't know God. 
Now, how can he say that these Jews who were supposed to be the people of God didn't know God? Well, in chapter 17, Yeshua describes the essence of eternal life as knowing God. This is eternal life that they may know God. See, they didn't know God. And he's he's telling them, you don't have eternal life. Because to know Him, to know the Father is to have eternal life. But the only way you can know the Father is through the Son. And so at the time that Christ showed up, from that time on, these Jews were damned if they did not trust Christ. He says in verse 25, I know Him because... he, He just got done saying, you don't know Him. Then He says, I know Him because I'm from Him and He sent me. This is another clear indication from the Lord that he's claiming to be equal with God. He's claiming to be God. This is a claim to pre-existence by the Son of God. I'm from Him. And Paul, again, teaches the same thing in Colossians chapter 1 where he, he talk, gives us that great Christology. Look at Colossians 1, 16 and 17. He's talking about Christ. He says, for by Him, by Christ, all things were created, both in heavens and on earth. So he's telling us Christ is the creator of everything that exists, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things and in him all things hold together. Yeshua existed forever with the Father in the glory before he came to this earth. He tells us that in John 17, 5 when he prays, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So he said, I want the glory back that we shared before I came into a fleshly existence here. One commentator has said, he who is from God was originally with God. And being with God, he has come from God, and now he is with us. And that's right, he came from the Father. He's an eternal being. I'm from him. He sent me. He wasn't simply born into the world like any other human being. He was sent by the Father. And this statement, again, was considered blasphemy by the Jewish leaders. And just confirmed their need to have Yeshua killed. We've got to kill this guy. He's saying some bad stuff. Alright, now watch what happens in 730. And they were seeking to seize him. Okay, we had enough of this. Let's get him. And no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. They were seeking to seize him. The word seize here is from the Greek piazzo, and it means to arrest. They want to arrest this guy. All right? This is the imperfect tense verb, which implies they started seeking to arrest him, and they tried and tried again to arrest him. He's standing in the temple, and the temple guard is seeking to arrest him, but they don't seem to get it done. All right? No man laid his hand on him. If they wanted to arrest him, why didn't they? He's right there. They wanted to. Well, from a human viewpoint, think of it this way. They knew he had supernatural powers, right? They've seen him heal. They've seen some incredible things. You remember all the way back to chapter 2, Yeshua went in and he cleansed the temple. Temple police are there. Hundreds of these temple police. He's throwing tables over. He's got a whip. He's driving people out. How does one man do that? Well, I think it might be explained if you go to the Garden of Gethsemane and look at what happens when the soldiers come to arrest him. Remember that? He went out to meet them and he says to these soldiers, who do you seek? 
And they answered him, Yeshua the Nazarene. That's who we want to arrest. And he says to them, I am. The he is not there in the text. It's just I am. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. (laughs) Okay, so he just says, I am, and the whole crowd falls down on the ground. So they understand this guy has got some supernatural power. So, you know, maybe they're thinking twice before they do this. They've seen him cleanse the temple. I mean, he was like Samson in the temple. One whip and he clears the whole thing out. Nobody stops him. Nobody does anything about it. Now, that's not the picture we usually have of Yeshua, right? He's just a meek, little, humble guy. This is a strong guy who clears this place, okay? One man clears the whole place out. Now, that may be why from a human perspective, because I think these guys had a little common sense, you know? I don't know if I want to mess with this guy, all right? We'd like to arrest him. We're told to arrest him, but I don't know. But the reason, the biblical reason they didn't lay hands on him, it says his hour has not yet come. Hour here is from the Greek hora. It's a reference to a special period in Yeshua's life. And it's really talking here about his time when he leaves the world to return to the Father. This is accomplished through his suffering, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. So bottom line, God sovereignly prevented Yeshua's premature arrest. They couldn't arrest him. Because they're under divine control. You know, redemptive history is planned by God and executed by God sovereignly. And everything happens according to His plan and timing. Now, think about this. So they're there. They've been ordered by the Sanhedrin to arrest Him. They want to arrest Him. They want to arrest and kill Him. Now, do you agree with that? They want to arrest and kill Him. But they couldn't do it. Well, see, this is going against the, the probably the greatest teaching that people believe, the, the most predominant teaching within churchianity is that man has a free will. And God dare not violate man's free will. Okay? Like, how, how dare God think He could violate man's free will? Well, these guys in their free will want to arrest and want to kill Christ. But they didn't do it. Why? Because God violated their free will and wouldn't let them do what they wanted to do. Now, can God do that? Can God override men's will? Well, if it's beyond your paradigm to say that God controls men's will, consider this. Abraham moves south to Gerar in the kingdom of Abimelech. And Remember what happened when Abimelech saw Abraham's 90-year-old wife? Wow, she's hot. I mean, seriously, this is what's going on. Remember, he goes in, we get there, say you're my sister. Why? Because I don't want him killing me to take you. So he says, she's my sister. So Abimelech goes, cool, I like her. Bring her in. Takes her, adds her to the harem. Did he touch her? Did he lay with her? Did he have sex with her? No. Why not? This is a hot woman. Why didn't he do anything? Well, look at what Genesis 26 says. Then God said to him in the dream, speaking to Abimelech, Yes, I know that in integrity of your heart you did this. In other words, you thought it was his sister. Okay, it's his wife. And I also kept you from sinning against me. What? He says, therefore, I didn't let you touch her. Abimelech could not have chosen to have sex with Sarah 
Because his will wasn't free because God said, I'm, I kept you from sinning. I wouldn't let you touch her. Wow. Seems kind of rude to him to override his free will, doesn't it? Notice what Yeshua told the Israelites. Exodus 34, 23 and 24. Three times a year, all your males are to appear before the Lord Yahweh, the Elohim of Israel. Okay? This is the pilgrim feast. He told the children of Israel, three times a year, you have to come up to Israel. You have to come to the temple for the pilgrim feast. Now, these guys are living scattered throughout all the land. Okay? So, here's the thing. Your neighbors are enemies. They're pagans. You know, they don't like you because you're a Jew to start with. But they know... Okay, you know what happens? These three times a year, these people all leave everything they got and they go to Jerusalem. Next time they leave, let's go steal all their stuff. No one's there. Let's just go take their herds, take their cattle, ransack their house. Let's do everything. And so, you know, the Israelites might have been a little concerned about that. But God says, for I will drive out nations before you and enlarge your borders and no man shall covet your land when you come up three times a year. So what? God said, don't worry. You come up and worship me. Nobody's even going to want your stuff. What? How does God know they're not going to covet their land? How does he know that? He knows because he controls their will. And he said, you're not going to want that stuff. Okay? I mean, it's amazing. Go freely worship me. Leave everything and just go worship. Don't worry about it. Because I'm sovereign. I'm God and I'll take care of everything. Listen, people. God's Sovereign will is exhaustive. It determines everything. He determines the king's personal plans. Proverbs 21.1 The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of Yahweh. He turns it wherever he wishes. God controls the king. I read this verse, knew this verse by heart until I realized it's not only kings he controls. It's everybody's heart. Okay? If he can control the king, he can control anybody, right? God determines the numbers that come up when the dice are thrown. People go, oh, come on. Well, the Bible says the lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from Yahweh. They determined a lot of matters that way. They'd cast a lot. He said, well, you cast a lot to find out the answer. Every decision you make is from me because I'm in control. God rules over all the affairs of men. Look at Daniel 2.21. It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings. He establishes kings. Man, that's a comforting thought. Okay? (laughs) I remember back a while when Clinton became president the first time. I was sick to my stomach. You know, I went out and got the paper that morning, picked it up. You know, Clinton's president. And I'm just distraught. And Lindsay came to me, and I don't know, she was eight or ten years old at that time, she said, Dad, don't worry. God sets up kings and He removes kings. And I'm like, from the mouth of babes. She was right. I know God's, God does it. He's in control. Sometimes we don't like what He does. <laughs> but He's in control. No one can act outside God's sovereign will or against it. Centuries ago, Augustine said, nothing therefore happens unless the omnis- omnipotent wills it to happen. He either permits it to happen or he brings it about himself. People, what we have to understand is God calls all the shots. He rules over all. Why is that? Because he's God. And when you get to be God, you can do whatever you want. But that is not going to happen, okay? 
And here, here's what I tell people who don't like that idea that God is absolutely sovereign. I said, well, listen, when you go out and create a universe, when you speak a universe into existence and you create it and you do all, then you can do what you want. But since he created everything, he controls everything. That's who he is. And listen, the sovereignty of God is asserted either expressly or implicitly on almost every page of the Bible. I mean, if you're familiar with your Bible, if you read the whole Bible, and you should be, every Christian should read that from cover to cover at least once a year. But if you're familiar with that Bible, you know he controls everything that happens. You see it over and over. And I think the Christian who has a mature understanding and trust in God's sovereign plan is spiritually prepared for anything that happens. He doesn't understand sometimes. We don't understand why we had to endure some difficulty. Because things happen and we don't like them. But we know that his experience, our experience is part of the sovereign plan, listen, of an all-wise, all-loving God. If you believe God is all-wise, he knows the end from the beginning, and you believe he is loving and that he loves you, what do you have to worry about? All of our questions that like, you know, why is this happening to me? Ultimately have the same answer. Our loving God, in His sovereign wisdom, willed it so. He willed it, okay? So what is our response? Sovereignly submit to His will and keep going on, alright? He's in control and there's a reason that things happen. You know, that, some, that bothers some people. To me, that's the greatest comfort in the world. My God loves me. I know He's wise, so I know He knows everything. So whatever He does is perfect. A lot of times, it's not what I like. But it's not about me, alright? He goes on to say, His hour had not yet come. Speaking of His hour, Augustine writes this, He did not therefore mean an hour when He would be forced to die. You know, the hour is talking about His death. There's no doubt there. But one when He would allow Himself to be put to death. For he was waiting for the time in which he should die, even as he waited for the time in which he should be born. You ever thought about it that way? He was waiting to be born. None of you experienced that, right? <laughs> he was waiting for it. Verse 31 says, But many in the crowd believed in him. And they were saying, When the Christ comes, he'll not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? Many of the crowd believed in him. Let me ask you something. What do you think that means? The crowds believed in him. What would you say that means? What happens to those who believe in him? They're Christian. They get eternal life, right? So here, many of the crowd are trusting in Christ and receiving eternal life. He's preaching. They're believing. Now, let me say here, there's no textual problem in this verse. Okay, some verses have textual problems and the you know, textual critics are arguing about what does this mean? What is that? There's no textual problems in this verse. It says, many of the crowd believed in Him. And here's what I want you to understand. Take that at what it says. What is this book written about? What's the purpose of this book? These things are written that you may believe that Yeshua is the Christ and believing you may have life through His name. 
So the purpose of the book was so people would come to faith in Christ. So guess what's happening? People are coming to faith in Christ. But you know what? A lot of people question this. Commenting on this verse, my favorite lordship writer, John MacArthur, says this. What kind of belief is this? That's one of the stupidest questions. Okay, because let me tell you something. There are not different kinds of belief. Okay? Belief is thinking a proposition is true. There's different objects of belief. Okay? What is the object of their belief? Well, many believe in Him. Okay? The object of their faith was Christ. But John has to ask, what kind of belief is this? He's questioning what the Scriptures say. Alright? This text says they believe. He goes on to say, Maybe the kind of believing of the disciples in chapter 6 who followed Him and followed Him and followed Him and then eventually abandoned Him. What's wrong with that statement? It is never said that the crowds believed in Him. What kind of faith did He have? Maybe the kind the crowds had. Well, the Bible doesn't say the crowds had any faith in Him. They were following Him because He was giving them a free lunch. He goes on to say this. Where am I at? I'm lost, I lost my place here. What kind of faith is this? All right, They followed him and followed him, followed him, and actually abandoned him. All right, It's never said. Like I said, they never said. Look at John 6.69. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is speaking of the disciples. The eleven in chapter 6. After everybody else left, it says, we've come to believe. Because he said, well, are you going to leave also? No, we're not leaving. We believe in you. So, they trusted him. The eleven. MacArthur goes on to say, this is a kind of temporary faith that gets you temporary eternal life. Yeah, that's kind of stupid, isn't it? Look, at nothing here indicates that this was some permanent, genuine, saving faith. Although, in some cases, that's possible. What? What are you saying? Nothing, there's nothing here. You know, there is something here to indicate that. It is called the authoritative, inspired, holy Word of God. This is what gets me so upset, people. He is trying to get people to question what the Word of God says. The Word of God says many believed in Him. And He says, maybe not. Don't let that happen, people. Don't let people talk you out of what the Bible says, okay? Look at it in context. Study it. We're in a book that's about faith. And he said, they believed in him. And they're like, nah, maybe not. Why does John question this? Anybody know why he questions? I'll tell you in a minute. But first, let me give you another Lordship writer. John Piper. These guys just can't let the text say what it says. Piper says this. They were really impressed with his miracles. Maybe their faith was real. Maybe it wasn't. And notice what he says in parentheses. You see that? Maybe their faith wasn't real like his brothers in verse 5. What? Did his brothers believe in him? Did it say his brothers believed in him? It says the exact opposite. Not even his brothers were believing in him. So what does Piper mean when he says maybe their faith was like his brother? They, the brothers didn't have faith. 
Is that, I don't know. This, I read this and I'm like, ah! <laughs> these are, these are men who have huge followings. And they take the word of God and they say, it doesn't mean what it says. And people believe them. I'll tell you what, you want to be saved, just believe what the Bible says. Many of the crowd believed in him. Alright, look at, we're going to jump ahead. Look at verse 39. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were receiving. Alright, so the people who believed in him are receiving the Spirit of God because they're believers. Not because, you know, it doesn't say those who really believed in him. Those who weren't faking their belief in him. Those who believed in him. They received the Spirit. Alright, here's why these guys question it. When the Christ comes, will he not perform more signs than these? More signs than this man did? So they say, well, they believed in him because of the signs he did. And so to them, that's not a true faith. But again, go to John chapter 20. He's talking about the miracles Christ did. Many other things he did that are not written in the book. But these, what? The signs. These are written that you may believe. So, because they believe because of a sign is not, you know, the sign was there to confirm what they believe because they can't believe unless God gives them faith. But the signs confirmed it. So these people are saying when Christ comes, this must be Him because the real, either Christ won't perform more than these, will He? And the answer in the Greek construction is no, He won't do greater signs than these. The implication is clear. They believe Yeshua is the Messiah. But you got people who say, well, they're not really Christians. And listen, this is, to me, this is more important than any issue in Scripture, okay? This is, this is about salvation. This is about eternal life. If you doubt that you're a Christian, what's that going to do for your life? Christian life is hard. It's difficult to live the Christian life. If you don't think you're a Christian, how hard is it going to be? What's the point? I'm not even, a, you know, I don't even know if I'm a Christian. And then, so what's the solution? Let's say, maybe I'm not a Christian. What do I need to do? Well, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, I did that. But it must not have worked. And he puts all these Christians in doubt. He questions their salvation. He does damage to the church of God because he's got everybody doubting whether they're, you know, whether they believe the right way. You know, you've heard the little thing. Did you believe with your head or your heart? Well, if you know anything about the Hebrew culture, that's ridiculous. The Hebrew has no word for the mind. Okay? The heart is what the Hebrew thought with. That's how they thought the thinking process was your heart. Okay? So to believe is to believe. We take, we took the word belief and we do all kinds of crazy things with it and we make people think they didn't believe they believe. You know if you believe something. Believing is believing a proposition is true. I told you the check's in the mail. You believe it or not. You can't verify that, can you? I mean, if you wait long enough, maybe you'll, you know, I'm still waiting for that check. But if I tell you it's in the mail, what you're going to, if you believe, you trust me, you'll believe it. You'll say, okay, I'm good. I'll wait for the check. If you don't believe me, you'll go, yeah, right. <laughs> you're not going to believe it. So Christ presents this proposition and they believe him. And they get eternal life, people. And don't let anybody talk you out of what the scripture says. Now, I understand there's times when the Scripture says something and it doesn't mean what it's, you know, the way it's presented. We get a different meaning out of it. But 
you know, when you're clear about something as this, when, when the Bible says they believed, it says that of Simon. Simon himself believed and was baptized in the book of Acts. And what do they all say? No, he wasn't. He didn't believe. Okay, well, the Bible said he did. All right, I got to get off this hobby horse and move on here, all right? <laughs> Listen, I, I'm just telling you, this is more important than anything, okay? Because if you don't know you're a Christian, you got to understand, you got to believe the gospel. But if you believe the gospel and then you keep, someone keeps banging doubt in your head, because you know why they want to doubt? Because if you don't do this, 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 you must not really be a Christian. What's the list? Show me the list of what Christians do. I've challenged them many times. I've challenged MacArthur personally on this issue. Okay, tell me where the line is. I mean, I have to do certain things. Yes, you. What? Can you give me a list? I mean, let's face it. If if there's a list, I want to do just the minimum. Okay, I'm not an overachiever. All right, I just do the minimum, but I want to make sure I get in. So I got to have a list, but they can't give you a list. They just say you don't make it because you do this or that. There was a point in time in my Christian life when if I heard somebody cuss. I wrote him off as can't be a Christian. Whoa. Because I lived under a lordship teaching that anybody that didn't live, you know, wasn't living this perfect life, that's a fantasy. You know what it makes people? Pharisees. Because you know who does that? Pharisees. They're judging everybody else. The Bible's written to you for you to take care of you. Too often we read it and we like, I gotta, yeah, that's speaking to so-and-so. I got to make sure he knows this. Keep your nose on your own face. You know, read the Bible for yourself. Yes, we're to hold each other accountable, but man, too often we read the Bible looking for something to straighten so-and-so out, okay? And I know you hear a message and you think, boy, I wish they were here. They, this is for them. No, it's for you, okay? Well, back in chapter 7, verse 13, there were those in the crowd that said, he's a good man. Speaking of Yeshua, others say, no, he's leading the people astray. Now here we got people saying, he's the promised Messiah. The crowd was always split on who he was. They were confused about his identity. Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Alright, this is funny, because some people find this, you got a link here between the Pharisees and the chief priests that were Sadducees, alright? Chief priests were Sadducees. Sadducees and Pharisees didn't get along, alright? So people read this verse and they say, there's a historical problem here. Because these people never got along and it's making it sound like they're getting along to fight Yeshua. That's an argument. You know, here's the dumbest thing. You ever heard this thing? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. These two, they, they didn't get along, but they got along when it came to Yeshua because they both hated him. All right? So when the common people turn to Yeshua, guess what? They're turning away from the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So the rulers order the temple police, who are the officers, probably there was an arrest warrant from the Sanhedrin, to go get them. They were the Levites and they were responsible to the Sanhedrin. Now the temple guards were the temple police. They were armed. Okay? They weren't a bunch of guys that, would you please know? They had swords and they used them. They weren't afraid to use them, okay? They were from the Levites. They had responsibility for maintaining order in the temple. They were responsible to arrest Yeshua, but they didn't do it. But since the Sanhedrin governed the eternal affairs of the country, now Rome, they're under Roman's power, okay? But Rome gave them pretty much freedom within the temple and stuff to do their own thing. 
and do what they wanted to do. So the temple police could be used at the pleasure of the high court to arrest, kill, do what, who would they wanted to. All right. Verse 33. Therefore, Yeshua said, for a little while longer, I'm with you and I go to him who sent me. Now, Yeshua here, speaking of a sacrificial death, it's only six months away. His burial, his resurrection, his ascension to heaven. He's got a short time before the cross, before he returns to his father. But these Jews have no clue what he's saying. Because they think he's just Joseph and Mary's kid, and that's all they know. Verse 34, you will seek me and will not find me, and where I am, you can't come. When are they going to seek him? There's a lot of, you know, controversy over this. What's he mean, you're going to seek me? I think what he's talking about here is within 40 years, that temple's going to be destroyed. A.D. 70. The Romans are going to come. They're going to sack the city. They're going to destroy that temple. Hundreds of thousands of Jews are going to be massacred. Hundreds of thousands are going to be carried off into slavery. And I can't but imagine that some of these guys are thinking, oh, I remember he told us about this. I remember he said, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then flee. And they're going to be seeking him all of a sudden. But it's too late. They rejected the Christ. He says, where I am, you can't come. What's he talking about? Well, he came down from heaven. He's going back to heaven. They can't come because they haven't trusted him. You will never go to heaven, he's saying. Heaven is for those who believe in the Lord, Yeshua the Christ, and for no one else. People understand this. Heaven is not for everybody. Yeshua was not a universalist. There's people today, universalists, out there crying, don't worry, everybody goes to heaven. Universalism is the teaching that God, through the atonement of Yeshua, will ultimately bring reconciliation between Himself and all people throughout the history. This reconciliation will occur regardless of whether they trusted in or rejected Yeshua as Savior during their lifetime. In other words, it doesn't matter. And we got Rod Bell. Any of you heard of Rod Bell? He's a, He wrote a controversial book on universalism a while back called Love Wins. See, you write a book called Love Wins. Everybody, you know, it's got to be a good book, right? He wrote it in March of 2011. At the time, he was leading the 10,000-member church, Mars Hill Bible Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And this is the gist of Bell's book. Every sinner will will turn to God and realize he has already been reconciled to God. In this life or the next. So I guess you can even turn to Christ when you die, after you die. He says, in the end, love wins. So Bell argues that God wants everybody to be saved and God gets what he wants. I agree with God gets what he wants. No question about that. But I don't believe he wants everybody to be saved. Because if he did want everybody saved, everybody would be saved. All right? He tells us that God's love will eventually meet even the hardest, it'll melt even the hardest of hearts, he says. And the universalist believes that God loves everybody. Therefore, Christ died for everybody. Therefore, all will be saved. I think that universalism is the logical outcome of Arminianism. Because Arminianism teaches God loves everybody. And if He does love everybody, it makes sense. Everybody would be saved. But that's not what we see in the Scriptures. Notice what Paul wrote. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Yeshua. Condemnation here. Katakrama, spiritual death. All are condemned in Adam. But those who are in Christ have no condemnation. Now, if Paul was a universalist, he would have said, there is therefore now no condemnation to anybody. But he didn't. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. 
And see, I see universalism as an attack on the gospel. Because over and over, the Bible calls upon men to believe on the Lord Yeshua the Christ for salvation. But the universe says, you don't need to believe in Yeshua to be saved. You know, the Philippian jailer said, what must I do to be saved? Paul was a universalist. He said, you don't need to do anything. Don't worry about it. It's all taken care of. That's not what he said. He said, believe on the Lord Yeshua the Christ. Because that's what you have to do. The scriptures make it very plain. You know, we just came out of chapter 6, all right? And 6 made it very plain. Yeshua kept telling the crowd, you don't believe because you can't believe. You haven't been called. You haven't been given to the Father. You haven't been chosen. He made that very clear. Verse 35, the Jews then said to one another, this is, this is powerful here, okay? The Jews are talking, okay, you don't, you can't follow me where I'm going, you know? So they say to this, Where does this man intend to go that we can't find him? He's not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? Now, the Greek grammatical construction here is no. It's another use of irony. The dispersion was the term used for the Jews who have been scattered all over the known world. And see, the Jews in Jerusalem felt those Jews were pagans. They mixed with the Greeks. They were not worthy to be called Jews. And so the idea that he would go teach them was just a joke. So they're kind of mocking here. Oh, is he going to go teach the Greeks? Is that where he's going? Because we're certainly not going there. Now remember I said to you that this tabernacle, the Feast of Tabernacles, 70 bulls were killed during this feast. And the 70 represented the 70 nations that God had rejected but would call back. And the whole thing, the Jews were always obligated to pray for and bring light to the Gentiles. God called them to be a light to the Gentiles. They never were. So this crowd speculates about Yeshua traveling to the Jews living outside the Holy Land to spread the message. Why Why didn't Yeshua carry the message to Jews outside? Why did He stay in the Holy Land? Well, the Scripture says, He answered them and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. See, it was to Israel that the Messiah was promised. It was to the... Messiah's mission to proclaim and establish the kingdom of heaven on earth to empower His covenant children of God to carry His message to the end of the earth. He commissioned His church to do that. And you know what? Three times a year, the Orthodox Jews had to come to the temple to worship God. And then they were coming from all over this world, this Greek world, so to speak, and then they would go back to that Greek world with the truth they learned there. And Yeshua had been teaching All the time there, so they're hearing the gospel. He didn't travel to them, but they came to him. And he was preaching the gospel to Jews and Greeks. And then finally, at Pentecost, he sends forth his new covenant church, baptized by the Holy Spirit, to spread the gospel of salvation to the ends of the earth. So, I think Lazarus is really using irony here. The whole idea that the Christian reader can't miss the irony. The most unthinkable, the most far-reached interpretation the Jews could give to Yeshua's words, where I go, you can't come, is, he must be going to the Gentile. And and it's like, yep, that's, that's what's happening. He's taking the gospel to the Gentiles. Verse 36 says, what is this statement that he said, you will seek me, you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. They just reiterate what he already said. The Jews don't understand where Yeshua is going any more than they understood where he'd come from. They were totally confused about his identity. And apart from a sovereign act of God giving them life, they never were going to understand. 
Alright? Yeshua, throughout the Scriptures, makes His identity clear. He is from God. He is God. He and the Father are one. To honor Him is to honor the Father. But no matter what He says, they don't get it because if you haven't been called of God, you're not going to get it. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for Your Word. Father, I thank You for the light that You give Your people to help them to understand who Yeshua is what He has done for us. Lord, I thank You for the truth of the Word of God. And I pray You'd give us the heart of Bereans, Father, that we would search the Scriptures to see if these things are so. Father, I pray that people would not believe anything I tell them without searching the Scripture to see if it lines up. Thank You, Lord, for Your incredible grace to us. Thank You for the age in which we live. Help us to be careful, to be discerning to who we listen to. to make sure we examine everything we hear from Your Word. Amen.